Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Seth Hahn, and I have the honor of reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Seth's voice is so great <laughs> that I'm tempted just to give him my notes because I don't know how you follow that, frankly. My name is Jonathan Mosier. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is, um, it's such a joy to have you here. We're so glad to see you, glad that you joined us this morning. And it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you. And so if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, I'm the youngest of six children, and uh, when my parents named all of us, um, they, they had this naming convention that they used that a lot of families tend to use, which is they wanted to choose kind of one letter and pick each name based off that one letter. So my sister's names begin with the letter K. My three brothers and I, our, our names begin with the letter J. And I love the orderliness and, and the kind of the systemic nature of choosing uh, a name that way, except that for most of my life, my father has had to run through the litany of those names before he arrived at mine, right? Particularly when there was something he needed. If he was sending me on an errand, I had to go to the garage to get something. It was Joel, J Jeremy, Jaron, Jonathan, go to the garage and get that thing. And it was that. And every once in a while, if he was particularly harried in a moment, he'd throw in the dog's name, which was particularly strange because that dog had died long before I was ever born. And whatever affliction my father has that way, it must be genetic, because as I was writing this sermon this week, I kept writing the name of Paul every time I write, meant to write the name of Peter. So if I use Paul's name today, you'll have to just translate that in your brain that I'm actually trying to refer to, refer to Peter. Peter, in fact, wrote this letter. And he wrote it with a very particular idea in mind. He was writing it to a scattered group of believers, scattered throughout the known world at this time, people who were experiencing tremendous suffering. He refers to them as exiles. They were people who were scattered throughout this region, not by virtue of necessarily one particular event that happened, but because the gospel had come not just to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. The gospel in its, in its amazing grace had begun to explode throughout the region. And so Peter here is writing to these people to prepare them for their struggles. He wants them to know what they're going to experience as sojourners in this world. And last week, as we looked at verses 1 and 2, we talked about that idea that Paul references them as elect exiles. He's pointing out that God, in His sovereign, pursuing, gracious love, had chosen and chased them down with His grace to become His people. 
And now this elect people of God, the ones upon whom God had set His love, didn't dwell together in, in national Israel or in some other geographic locale, but now they are scattered throughout the world. They were a spiritual nation. And Peter's going to talk about that idea later in this book. He says, you're part of a spiritual kingdom that was inaugurated by Christ. And Peter's going to go on to say, and this is why it's relevant for us today, some 2,000 years later, that all true Christians, including us here today, have been the recipient of the divine love and the active work of the Trinity. That God Himself, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is actively involved in your salvation. That you are not a passive thought to God. Your salvation is not incidental, nor is it something that you mustered up, but that He in His grace pursued and loved you. And that's what verse 2 talked about at length, that we have been chosen by the sovereign grace of the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and having had our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, have now been called into obedient living. And the declaration of all of that miraculous Trinitarian activity creates a response in the heart and mind of Peter. It's what he gives us as he begins verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's so overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's love and by the pursuit of God in his own life and for these people that it's as if he stops mid-sentence to say we have to just stop for a minute and draw attention to how amazing and incredible our God is. This is how wonderful and miraculous and gracious he is toward us. He can't contain his excitement. And now as we look into these these verses that were read for us this morning, Peter is going to begin to address how that salvation affects the life, the everyday in and out life, particularly in suffering and persecution of those very same believers. And so we're going to pick up with that thought in the second half of verse 3. Here's what it says. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Now in that simple phrase, there's a lot going on that's worth unpacking. And I want to start by talking about this idea because within church circles, we tend to use mercy and grace as interchangeable words. They're typically paired together. We talk about the grace and the mercy of God. And I think if we get down to it, for a lot of people, there really is no distinction between what those two words mean. They seem as if they mean the same thing. And the truth is, they are related, but they actually mean very different things. Grace is that idea that you have been given something that you do not deserve. That God has gifted you, that He's granted things to you, that He's loved you when you did not deserve it. But mercy is the polar opposite of that. Mercy is not being given what you do deserve. So if you get pulled over by a police officer and you're going 10 miles over the speed limit and he walks up to your window and takes your license and you look with fear and trembling in the rearview mirror as he walks back to his vehicle and types whatever he does into his computer and walks up back to the car and you're just crossing your fingers for whatever that's worth, hoping that somehow he will not give you a ticket, but he arrives at the window and goes, here's your ticket, don't do it again. You have just received justice. You have gotten exactly what you deserved. But if on his way back from that vehicle, he arrives at your window and says, tell you what, today I'm just going to give you a warning. Don't let it happen again. You have been the recipient of mercy. And when Peter here references God's mercy, what he's saying is that what you and I deserved, what we had earned for ourselves, 
by virtue of the way we've lived our lives, our disobedience to God, our rebellion against God, our avoidance of the things that God instructs us to do, what we have deserved is death and hell. And right on the face of it, that just doesn't sit well with us. Everything about the idea of death and eternal torment doesn't sit well with our souls, and it shouldn't. It's an uncomfortable notion. It's one that we don't have a context for understanding. And for many of us, if we're honest, it seems extreme. You're telling me that because of some things that I did in my life that weren't quite right, what I deserve is hell? But understand at the root what sin actually is. Sin is not merely a violation of the law, though it certainly is a violation of God's law. Sin at its very root is cosmic treason, in the words of one theologian. It's the idea that you have looked into the face of God, heard the instruction and the voice of God, read what God had to say, or just looked upon creation and in realizing that there there must be somebody that is behind everything we see. You have still seen fit to live your own life, your own way. It's as if you're proverbially shaking your fist in the face of God. God, don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me what's going to make me happy. Don't tell me what's good or what's bad. I am perfectly capable of making my own decision. And in doing so, what you are telling the king of the universe is that he can get off the throne so that you can get on. And when we understand our sin through that lens, suddenly the wrath that the Bible talks about makes a lot more sense. But God showed mercy not giving us what we deserved. Instead, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. Now, real briefly, we talked about this at length last week, so we won't spend all the time on it this week, but real briefly, notice the language that he uses there. He says that God himself has caused you to be born again. So the, the functional question is this, what participation did you have in your own birth? You were a passive recipient of it. And in a very similar way, what we're being told in this passage is that apart from the intervening grace of God and Him imputing life and righteousness to us, we were dead and unable to do anything about our condition. But notice how he continues then. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And incidentally, this is one of the places from which we derive the terminology born again, or you may have heard the term born again Christian. It's often a way that we might refer to ourselves. And again, culturally, that language has become weighed down with all sorts of meaning. There are people that use that term born again derisively. They use it as a criticism. Oh, you're not telling me that he became one of those born again Christians, are you? I mean, faith is fine and religion has its place, but tell me that he's not one of those born again Christians as if there are varieties of Christian. See, understand that being born again is not a flavor of Christianity. The Bible knows nothing about a Christian who has not been born again. And if you were with us on Easter Sunday, this is exactly what we talked about. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is the foundation of our faith, that Christianity is not merely a system of belief. It's not just a driver of some sort of social change. Jesus did not come just to make bad people good. No, Jesus came to make dead people alive. And when we experience the grace of God and salvation in our life, that's exactly what we're experiencing that what was once dead has now come to life. But Peter's not going to stop there. In fact, I don't even think that's the primary focus of this particular text. He says, not only were you born again, but you were born into something. 
And the truth is we're all born into something. There are people that are born into wealth and there are people that are born into poverty. There are people that are born into intact homes and there are people who are born into broken homes. Some people are born into stability. Some people are born into dysfunction. But what Peter says, of all the things that he could choose in terms of how to describe our new birth, he says, you were born into a living hope. Now why, of all things that Peter could have talked about in this text, why in the world did he decide to focus his attention on living hope? Well, again, keep in mind the context of this whole letter. Peter's writing to scattered Christians. They're experiencing tremendous hardship. We find this in verse 6, which says this, In this you rejoice, in that living hope you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And by virtue of their new faith in Jesus Christ, the Christians of this era were experiencing all sorts of of difficulty. Certainly they were experiencing the sort of difficulty that you and I face every day. There were difficulties with their families. There were difficulties with loved ones who had passed. There were all of those things that they were dealing with that are hard in our lives to interact with. But in addition, there was specific persecution going on. We know, for instance, that in the Ephesian church, that or rather broadly, we know what the persecution that the believers were experiencing. We know that Paul, according to his own account, was beaten and left for dead. Stephen, the first deacon of the church, was stoned to death, literally pushed into a ditch. As Pharisees lifted up stones and boulders and threw them upon his body until he was dead. We know according to history that John was boiled alive. We know that Peter, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, was crucified upside down. But for many Christians, the suffering was less dramatic but no less significant. So in the city of Ephesus, for instance, and at most modern cities at this time, most workers were, were members of trade guilds. And each of those guilds had their own god. So if you were a carpenter, you had a particular god of carpentry that you would worship. And if you were a stone worker, you had a particular stoneworking god that you worshipped and so forth. And so in order to be part of the guild, in order to be part of your trade, in order to be a worker of good standing, to have the reputation of the guild behind you, and ultimately to receive your wages, it was expected that you would go to that guild and that you would worship that particular god. And all of a sudden, these people who'd come from pagan lifestyles are realizing, wait a minute, I can no longer pledge fealty or worship to this particular guild god. I'm worshiping the one true god. And they're put in this precarious position. Do I maintain my job? Do I maintain my income, my ability to care for my family? Or do I worship God? Now, that is a real, tangible, weighty, decision. Because if you left that guild, you were leaving your work, you were leaving your paycheck, you were also, by implication, leaving polite society. People didn't want to have anything to do with you if you were potentially the reason that their business was not succeeding. And so suddenly you were an outcast. So Christians now are being run out of their jobs, they're losing their primary means of income, they're ostracized from society. These Christians who had begun to experience the personal freedom, the spiritual benefit of forgiveness, and the wonder of God's grace are now beginning to lose hope. What are we going to do? How am I going to handle this? See, we take it for granted, but that idea of hope is one that is absolutely essential for the mental, emotional, spiritual well-being of humanity. 
By nature, we are wired as a people with a need for hope. We need something to live for. We need something to anticipate. We need purpose. We need direction. And when people begin to lose hope, life itself feels meaningless. To put a fine point on that idea, many of you may have witnessed a scenario where an older relative passes, and within just a couple days or a few weeks or maybe a couple months after, their spouse also passes. What potentially happens in that moment? The motivation to keep going may have passed. But understand this, what the Bible is going to say is that not all of your hopes are created equal. There are people that have a hope for a satisfying job, for happy families, for financial success. There are people that have hope for physical health. But the problem, as we've seen before and as we've talked about at length, is that there are none of those things that can't be taken away in an instant. Your job may not be as stable as you expected it was. The economy can be fickle, as we're experiencing. Marriages can have issues. Kids can make devastating decisions. And one test result can reveal that our vitality is fleeting. See, those hopes can dissipate instantly. But notice what Peter says in verse 6. He says, in this living hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He says you need a living hope. You need a hope that's not going to die, that's not going to corrode, that's not going to fade away. And understand what he means when he uses that word hope, because we have yet to define it intentionally in this sermon so far. When we just talk about hope in the Christian sense, we are not talking about hope the way that the world talks about it. The way the world talks about hope is optimistic wishfulness. I really hope things work out well. I hope I get that job. I hope I get the promotion. I hope my kid gets into that school. I hope I get that raise, whatever it happens to be. No, when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about it as a confident certainty, an assured promise. See, and we need that because there's going to be all kinds of trials that grieve us. And that word grieve in our text is interesting today. It literally means an oppressive, suffocating grief. It's the sort of grief you experience when somebody close to you that you love passes. Overwhelming. Where if you can get to sleep, you wake up and the very first thought on your mind is that person. That's the kind of grief that Peter's writing about here. But Peter says, because of the living hope you are able to rejoice. Now that, that can be a wrestle for all kinds of people, and rightfully so. The idea that there's rejoicing in the middle of suffering is, again, something that's so foreign to our experience. It's something that's so foreign to our, our natural perspective of things that it seems almost silly at times. But I want you to follow the flow of what it is that Peter's saying here. He is not telling you that you have to pretend that things are great even when they're not. He is not promoting some sort of happy, clappy, coffee mug Christianity that allows you to pull verses from their context and bury your head in the sand pretending that everything's okay. You know, the Bible is realistic about life. It's the reason that we're told to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn. But 
simultaneously, it provides a living hope that allows you to navigate those difficulties without being ultimately crushed by them. See, it's not that everything in life is pleasant for the Christian, but that this living hope leads you to joy that can't be found anywhere else. Well, how does that actually work? Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says when you have a living hope as you go through life's difficulties, your hope is actually intensified and strengthened in suffering. Think about that just for a minute, because again, it's so counterintuitive. In nearly every other area of life, your hope begins to diminish as you experience life. Your hope for physical health and vitality begins to fade as your body begins to fail. Minds begin to grow more and more dull. The world at large may grow more and more hostile and absurd. Aspirations that you once had may go unfulfilled, but rather than leading to hopelessness, the confidence of the believer is that the living hope found in faith in Jesus Christ grows all the more intense. Now, how does that happen? Peter compares it to refining of gold. So I'm just going after something I read on the internet. I've never refined gold. I don't know anything about metallurgy or metallurgy or even how to pronounce that particular word. I struggled with it this morning. But here's the one thing that I read and presume is true which is that when metallurgists or metallurgists refine gold, they heat it to the point where it begins to melt, and all of that heat, as it intensifies, pushes dross. Other metals and minerals and impurities within that metal pushes it to the surface where that dross can be scraped off the top so so that what is left behind is refined. See, for the Christian, the difficulties of life actually intensify hope and joy. Why? How? Because when you have a confident hope, an assured promise, life's disappointments can't ultimately crush you. They don't have the final word. And because your hope is not in your circumstances, you begin to be able to work through difficulties rather than finally succumbing to them. I was trying to think this week about scriptural ideas that we could point to where we actually see this. Here's two that I came up with. Hopefully, they'll be helpful for you. One, was, one comes from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. It's a verse that's been very helpful for me over these past few years. And here's the reason that I bring it up. Here's what it says in Psalm 4, verse 4. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Here's why I love that verse. Because typically, when we think about Christianity, we don't think about a permission structure for anger. We think, well, as good Christians, we ought never be angry. And so if I'm angry, my answer to that is to stop being angry. And, and the question that naturally follows is, how is that working for you? Last time you were mad and you said, you know what, I'm a good Christian, therefore I am going to try not being mad. You're not looking at your life in a realistic fashion, but the Bible does. And so the writer of this particular psalm says, when you're angry, be angry but do not sin. Don't allow that to drive you inward, to drive you away from God, to drive you into bitterness, to drive you into regret. Instead, go before the Lord, lay on your bed, take it to Him. When was the last time we just admitted our anger to God? 
rather than trying to bottle it up or rather than trying to assuage it through our own power. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul, and I did mean to say Paul that time, specifically addresses the idea of grief in the life of the Christian around those who have died. And here's what he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 13. He says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. What? Death is the ultimate suffering for those left alive. There is an absurdity to death in the fact that you can never see someone that you love again. And without a living hope in Jesus Christ, that absurdity is overwhelming. It leaves you with, with only two positions if you don't know Jesus. It leaves you with nostalgia where you can begin to look back upon happy memories and try to memorialize someone's life, but you never really come to grips with the significance of that loss. Or it crushes you. The realization of mortality becomes an overwhelming idea for you. But when you have a living hope, the invitation you are given is that you are able to grieve incredibly deeply. You're able to feel the loss of that. You're able to experience the heartache and heartbreak of that, yet do it without a lack of hope. With a proper joy and a confidence that the judge of all the earth can do nothing but what is right. Well, how can a living hope provide that? We've danced a little bit around the definition of living hope, but we're going to find it here in verse 4. You have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice what that's trying to encapsulate. This living hope is unlike any other wishful thought that we might ever have. It doesn't die. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't fade. It's preserved for us by God himself and is going to be revealed when, jump down to verse 7, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the gift and promise of eternal life and the perfect fulfillment of your deepest needs. Now, where do we actually see that in this text? Well, at its root, every hope we experience in this life is born of a deeper longing in our souls. There is something we are naturally trying to fill in our lives, and we look to all sorts of things to fill that gap within us. We look to busyness, and we look to work, and we look to success, and we look to, to momentary happiness. We look to material goods. We look to sex, and we look to relationships, and we look to the happiness of our own children. We want something to hang our life on, to find our meaning in. And so whether we're pursuing that in comfort or success or physical satisfaction or relational intimacy or financial security, at our core, what we're pursuing is admiration, connectedness, finding our own worth. And what's interesting as we read this text is that we read verse 7, and we're so used to reading those words, praise, honor, and glory, in the context of Christ that we just naturally assume it's about Him. 
But notice what's actually happening in that verse, because that's not what Peter is saying. He's saying the tested genuineness of your faith, the exercise of your faith, in the midst of the challenges, the difficulties, the pain, the suffering of this life, results in praise, honor, and glory, not of Jesus explicitly in this case, but of you. Now, admittedly, to some of us, that immediately sounds strange, but I would, I would suggest to you that we find this idea in more than one occasion throughout the New Testament. We find it, I think, in this passage. I think we also find it in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Bible says that not only is God our ultimate inheritance, but we are His inheritance. It sounds impossible to us, but then we read texts like this from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, which says this. This language will sound familiar to what we read last week, and notice what it says right at the very end. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn, that's Jesus himself, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And glorified in that context refers back to the idea that we are being conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, the glorification that awaits us, the living hope that we have here and now, is that we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That what is now happening in our life through sanctification growing slowly but surely, a slow obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson put it, is going to find its ultimate fulfillment when we reach heaven, when we are with Jesus Christ. That we as adopted children receive all of the privileges and assurances of sonship, up to and including the fact that Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us brother or sister. And if you think about that for a moment, the question is, does it grab your heart? Is your view of Jesus so distant or so foreign or so far off that the idea that he would refer to you with the same kind of affection as two loving siblings would, is that, is that changing your outlook on everything? And if that's not enough, here's the guarantee of all of it, verse 4. This living hope is kept in heaven for you. In other words, God Himself is the guarantor of this hope. That for the true Christian, whether that's 2,000 years ago, scattered throughout Asia Minor and Europe, or today, sitting in Heartland, Wisconsin, for the true Christian, there is nothing that can take that hope from you. Not my difficulties, not my persecution, not even my own ineptness which is a balm to my soul because if I was able to mess up my salvation, I surely would. It's a sweet comfort because if my salvation is my own doing, if it depends on my own goodness or my own ability to muster up my own faith and maintain it, then inevitably I'm going to mess it up. But if God is both the initiator and the guarantor of my salvation, I can have perfect confidence that no matter what happens in this life, it will result in my glorification, praise, and honor, and glory in the presence of God. So how is this living hope given to me? 
he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this verse is one of the reasons why we chose to do 1 Peter immediately on the heels of Easter. Because though, we know that the re- because though we know the resurrection holds a central place in Christianity and prayerfully and expectantly within our own hearts, the truth of the matter is we go far too long in our Christian life without ever giving the resurrection its, prior import- or its, its uh, proper rather, importance. But Resurrection Sunday is one of those Sundays that we set aside to talk about that explicitly, and it leads exactly into this text because it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was the down payment on our resurrection. It's the guarantee that we've been given new life that cannot be taken away and that ultimately results in glorification. It's the new life that we've been given that enables us to walk through incredible hardship with hope that allows us to experience suffering without being ultimately crushed. And so then the question becomes this, is religion just the opiate of the masses? As Karl Marx referred to it some vague promise of future reward in exchange for all the suffering and misery of this life? And again, the Bible has a more than adequate answer to that question because Peter's suggestion is not that you just put up with hardship, but that there is a very real and present power in this living hope. Look what he says in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, brother and sister in 2022 in Heartland, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And here's what he's saying. The present hope in suffering is found in the ever-presence and the love of Christ. It's to remind you so consistently and so deeply of Jesus' love for you right here, right now. Not just his love for a future perfect version of who you might be, but his love for you right now that you find yourself loving him all the more. Like any relationship, there's mutuality. There's affection that goes both ways. There's a deep abiding love that goes both ways. See, in order to get through suffering, according to Peter, you need an affection for Christ that is greater than your suffering. And as one commentator pointed out, in order to do that, we have to follow the example of Jesus himself. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, says this about Jesus. Look to him. Look to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the natural question that ought to pop to our mind is this, what then was the joy that was set before Christ? What could possibly be so amazing, so incredible, so joy-giving, despite the circumstances that Jesus sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? that he endured the lashing of the cat of nine tails, that he endured the mockery and the spitting, the ripping of his beard, the nails through his hands and his feet, and ultimately and far more significant than any physical suffering he experienced, that he was willing to go to the cross for you and me to take all of our sins, past, present, and future on him. What in the world could provide so much joy in the mind and heart of Jesus Christ 
that he could find joy in that moment. And as the same commentator pointed out, we find the answer to that in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, which says this. If you know that, that's the the passion narrative of the Old Testament prophesying the death of Jesus. And here's what it says about it. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In his suffering, he saw and he was satisfied by what? That many, namely you and me, would be made righteous in the sight of God. That you, brother or sister, were the joy that was set before Christ. And when that truth so grips and grasps our hearts that our affections are stirred toward him, the attraction of Jesus becomes brighter than anything else we can walk through in our life. So how is joy intensified in suffering? Because in the midst of suffering, my attention and my affections are drawn ever closer to Christ because I'm reminded of what he suffered on my behalf. And the mutuality of that relationship drives one into joy despite suffering. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took on himself what I deserved. He experienced God's justice for my sins so that God could extend great mercy, according to this text, towards me. And not only did Jesus take what I deserve, but he gave himself, or rather, he gave me what he deserved. Praise and honor and glory. So what enables a first century Christian to press on with his faith even though he loses his job and his income because of it? The utter assurance that he has the perfect approval and love of the creator of the world. What enables a first century Christian to face his own death because of his faith in Jesus? The guarantee kept in heaven, guarded by the hand of God, that God himself will welcome him with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And the same can be true of us if or when we face the exact same fate or whatever other sufferings we may endure in this life. You see, if that living hope is anything short of a guarantee kept in heaven, it will fade and we'll grow tired but it's the certainty that Jesus gave himself as the down payment of that promise and proved through the resurrection that he always makes good on his word that we can find joy in the middle of sorrow. And with all of that in our minds, we're going to come to this table to be reminded of that down payment. That as we take the bread and the wine or juice this morning, we're being reminded that Jesus gave himself for us that he did it as the assurance of our future resurrection for our present hope, for our living hope in the middle of whatever it is we're going through. And so what we're going to do is this. We're going to take just a few minutes to be silent. For some of you, that may be new or it may be strange. But our encouragement to you in that silence is just to spend time with our Father to enjoy his presence, to be still, as Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 would say. 
to consider the things that we've talked about today. And then when the music begins, you're invited to come up, take one of each of the elements. The bread will be in the center, the wine and the juice will be available on both sides of that, and then you can make your way back around and, and back to your seat. But please wait to take those elements. We'll take those together in just a minute. And just one more thing, which is this. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and all of this is new to you or you're wrestling with whether or not you believe this, our invitation for you today would be to please not partake in the elements, but stay where you are and consider the things we've talked about. Hear that as an invitation to know and to witness the love of God for you and to consider the things that we're going to observe. So with that, I'll pray and then we'll go into silence. Lord Jesus, we thank you for texts that are so full of your truth and so drip with your grace that they deserve second and third and fourth and fifth looks. We thank you that for those of us who know you, our future inheritance, our living hope, our faith, our eternity is secured with you that you are guarding it and keeping it. And because of that, we can rest assured of your love for us and our salvation in you. And God, for anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray, God, that this would be the morning that they would, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. That they would see through the, through the words of Scripture and through the elements that they're going to witness today that Jesus, who is God, gave himself fully and completely once for all on the cross for their salvation and their forgiveness, but that he also rose again to provide that promise, that assurance, that hope for this life. So God, be with those who are mourning and suffering. We thank you that your word and that your faith is a realistic one with an unbelievable promise at its end. So we thank you for who you are and your love for us, and it's in your name we pray.